Do you ever take a cognitive pause during your resuscitations? Are you wondering what is a cognitive pause? You know what this is, you just might not have heard it called this before. The cognitive pause is a period of your resuscitation where you stop and ask yourself, is this patient really have the diagnosis that I think that they have? So for example, if you have a patient who's in septic shock and they're not responding to your resuscitation, you might ask the question as to whether or not there's cardiogenic shock, or could this be due to hyperthyroidism or some other sepsis mimic? This week we have Dr. Anand Swaminathan, the Swami from MRAP, giving us a talk on a systematic approach to his cognitive pause when his resuscitating patients. This was taken from the Resuscex Revolve Conference in 2022. And I gotta say the image that he shows in this lecture is screenshotted on my phone and I have it with me on my shift to refer to. Now you're listening to this on the podcast version. You're saying, well, I don't have that PDF. You wanna get over to YouTube and watch the video with the slides or at least take a screenshot of the slide that has all these cognitive pauses. It's a really good lecture and I'm excited to listen to it one more time. So let me hand it off to Dr. Anand Swaminathan talking about the cognitive pause. Hey everyone at ResusX, this is Swami and I'm so happy to be back with you guys. Although I do wish I could be live with all of you. We will get there someday, but. Um, we are going to dive into a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, I'm an emergency physician, but I do love resuscitation. It, it is definitely the focus of what I do. If I could just spend time in our critical care area, it is what I would do all the time. And I think this is a situation we run into quite frequently. We have a patient that we've started on vasopressors, but they're not really responding the way that we would like them to. Almost of the time, the patient responds well, but there are these situations where they don't respond. And I think it's really important for us to have an organized approach to taking care of that patient. So with a, a sort of sample patient, we have a young woman who comes in with pneumonia. She's got a cough, she's got a fever. You see the vital signs here, little hypotensive, little tachycardic, fever of about 101. There's no real mystery as to what this patient has because when you get the x-ray, you see the infiltrate and so you start your broad spectrum antibiotics, you draw your labs off, the lactate is four, and the pressure is soft. You give fluids, pressure's still soft. And so now you start your vasopressor. Most of us are gonna be uh, reaching for norepinephrine. We start that norepi, and the nurse is titrating it up and titrating it up, and they eventually come back to you and goes, doc, I'm on like 20 mics of norepi, and the patient's pressure is still 85 over 40. They still have a low map. What do you want me to do? And I think that our reflex at that point is to reach for a second vasopressor. And, and I'm sure that we could argue for hours about what that second vasopressor should be. But I think that that's not exactly the response we should have. We can start the second vasopressor, whatever we choose. But that point is a cognitive trap. It's a cognitive trap because it's really easy for us to just say, add epinephrine, add some neosinephrine, add some vasopressin. But what we really should be focused on is why. Why is the patient not responding to the intervention that I have done? It seems reasonable. I have a patient with septic shock. They have pneumonia. I've given antibiotics. I started a, a vasoactive substance. Why is their pressure not coming up? And so really, we have to understand that we have focused far too long on Occam's razor. Occam's razor, that plurality should not be posited without necessity. And we really do focus on that first part of it. If you ask someone, what's Occam's razor? They'll tell you that, well, it means that all of these presentations should link back to one cause. There should be one pathophysiologic process 
that should unite all of the symptoms the patient has. But that's just simply not how patients work. And instead, the part of Occam's razor we should be focusing on is without necessity. Many times we can link everything back to one diagnosis, but sometimes it's more complicated than that. In fact, I think we should probably dish Occam's razor altogether and focus instead on Hickam's dictum. Patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. And this is what we see in emergency medicine, resuscitation, critical care all the time. There are multiple different processes going on, and I really can't bring those all back together. And so we should change our view. Instead of looking to Occam's razor, look to Hickam's dictum and really think about what else could be going on here. And so when we have that moment, when the patient's not responding the way that we want them to, instead of just routinely reaching for that second vasopressor, adding that on for the patient, we should have a cognitive pause. This is a stop point in our resuscitation to say, what have I done? What's going on? And what could I be missing? And if we think that way, if we think about what could I be missing, that's where we really can start to add a bit of nuance to our, our uh, management of the patient. So this is really where our gears start turning. And my mind is really thinking about all of those different possibilities, starting with acidosis. Many of these patients, whether it be septic shock, whether it be another cause of shock, are going to have an acidosis. And we know that when patients are acidemic, vasopressors don't work as well as they normally would. It's an easy diagnosis to make. We get a blood gas. We need to get this for our basic metabolic panel. We don't even need the blood gas. And we see that the patient's acidemic. The question, though, is what do I do to treat them? And this is much more difficult because what we really need to do is identify the underlying cause and reverse it. It still might be that sepsis and that patient just, we haven't gotten them better enough that their acidosis has resolved and now the vasopressors are working the way we want them to. I think it's easy, though, to reach for some other interventions. I think the one that people would really reach for a lot is bicarb. The patient's acidemic. That's why they're not responding. Let me give them some bicarb. But pushes of bicarb don't really work. In order for a push of bicarb to do anything, we have to hyperventilate the patient, blow off that CO2. Many of these patients are already hyperventilating. And giving them boluses of bicarb might actually be deleterious if we're not doing that hyperventilation process. But what might be a smarter move is using isotonic bicarb as my resuscitation solution. This is a nice balanced solution. It'll give some bicarb back into that serum. And there probably is some threshold, some threshold pH, some threshold serum bicarb where you say, I just got to do something. I got to give some bicarb back. Not that this has any data associated with it, but I think that once we get into those single digit bicarb levels, that's where I'm probably going to give isotonic bicarb as my solution. And the other things that we can do for that acidosis, of course, we can start the patient on dialysis or CVVHD. That takes a little bit more time to get set up, and it still might be something that you have to reach for, but I think this is something that we can try in between. The next thing on my list to remember is hypothyroid. We'll have many patients who come in with sepsis because their thyroid disease wasn't treated properly, or the infection that they have set off their hypothyroidism. It increased their need for thyroid hormone which they couldn't get an exogenous supply of. And the reason why uh, hypothyroidism can cause refractory sepsis or refractory hypotension to your vasopressor is because these patients just simply aren't going to respond until we give them some thyroid hormone back. Now, diagnostically, the easy thing is to say, well, I'll just get a level. I'll get a TSH. That'll give me the diagnosis. 
Of course, there are problems here. I'm sure many of you work in places where you can't get a fast turnaround time on that TSH. You send it out, get it back a couple of days later, not really going to help the patient in front of you. In addition to that, the TSH might lag. So the, the abnormalities in that lab might lag behind the clinical symptoms that you're seeing. There are some false negative and false positive reasons as well. All of that to say that we can't really rely on the TSH. Instead, we have to make this diagnosis clinically. Some of it's easy. If the patient has a history of hypothyroidism, that might clue you in that hypothyroidism might be at play here. If they have a big scar across their thyroid, that's another nice clinical sign to tell you that maybe this is the problem. The other thing to look for is the lows. Do they have low temperature, low heart rate, low blood pressure, low finger stick? All of those lows together should make you think about hypothyroidism and make you think about reaching for thyroid hormone to supplement. So if you see those pan lows, you're going to treat this empirically. You're going to give them some T4. That's the standard treatment. But this patient's so sick, you might actually need to do more than just give T4. Problem with T4 is it does need to be converted to the active form T3 in order to actually have an effect for the patient. So this might be a place where you want to mix a little T4 and a little T3 together. We don't often reach for T3. You might want to get a consult for this, but we can do all of this on our own. It's a matter of just giving a little bit of T3. If you give a lot of T3, you're going to encounter some problems. You might get some cardiac ischemia, some more tachycardia. You could actually get more uh, hypertension with that. So I'm going to mix. Usually, if I'm just giving T4, I'll give 500 micrograms of T4. Since I'm going to do a mix, I'll give 400 micrograms of T4. It's going to take a little while before it actually does anything. And then I'm going to give 10 mics of T3. It seems like just, just a little whiff of T3, but that's enough to start getting you moving down the right pathway allow those vasopressors to actually have a little bit more activity, reverse some of that hypothyroidism while the T4 is getting converted and going to have its effect. All right, so the next thing on my list is anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis can be tricky because we often think about, oh, they got to have a rash and hypotension or rash and respiratory symptoms. But honestly, these patients can have just hypotension. Hypotension alone can be anaphylaxis. That is part of the diagnostic protocol or diagnostic pathway. What we have to think about with these patients is they may have had anaphylaxis before they came to me, or it's possible that I gave them something that caused them to have anaphylaxis. One of the biggest antibiotics that we give these patients with sepsis is piptazo. Penicillin allergies are real, even though they are far less common than we think they are, they are real. And so we may have done something to set off this anaphylactic reaction. So we have to think about this as a second cause, especially if the patient started getting better and then all of a sudden is getting worse. Maybe it's something that I gave them. And of course, here, we're going to reach for epinephrine as our vasopressor to help reverse this. So we are adding a second vasopressor, but we're tailoring what vasopressor we're adding here. We're going to specifically add epinephrine to reverse this process. You already have an IV. I would go ahead and give this IV. I'd probably give it as maybe 10 mics as a bolus and start them on a drip after that. Adrenal insufficiency is the next one on my checklist to make sure I don't miss. I think this is another one that can be a little bit hard to diagnose. And we're not going to do it with cortisol levels. We're not going to wait for those levels to come back. Often the places that can't get a TSH also can't get a cortisol turnaround time. So we have to make this diagnosis empirically, or we have to make this diagnosis clinically and treat it empirically. If the patient has hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, that might kind of push you down that pathway to diagnosis. Obviously, if the patient has a history of adrenal insufficiency, that can help. But what we should be looking for is the patient who is on chronic steroids, maybe chronic low-dose steroids, that COPD patient who's always on five milligrams of prednisone 
and now they come in with pneumonia, that patient has a higher steroid need. And so they're going to have a relative adrenal insufficiency. So yes, we can look for the hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, but that's probably not what's going to happen most of the time. Most of the time, I think what's going to happen is we're going to have that refractory shock. We're going to be up on our dose of norepinephrine. And I've just kind of built it into my thought process that once I get to about 0.3 mics per kilo per minute of norepi, I just go ahead and empirically give them steroids because either they're adrenally insufficient, they're relatively adrenally insufficient. Maybe I'm going to go down that hypothyroid pathway, in which case I've got to give steroids as well. So I go ahead and give them steroids at that point. 100 to 200 milligrams of soliocortef or hydrocortisone is um, going to be fine as well. You can kind of mix and match based on whatever steroid you particularly want to give at that point. But this is typically what I will do for these patients. Once I get to that threshold of 0.3 mics per kilo per minute of norepi, I'm going to empirically give my steroid therapy so I'm no longer thinking about that possibility. Hypocalcemia. This one's an easy one to diagnose. All we need is a blood gas or a basic metabolic panel. But I think we forget how important calcium is in giving the patient a blood pressure, both because it has to do with smooth muscle relaxation and also vasoconstriction, but also with cardiac contractility. And so if we don't give calcium back to the patients who are hypocalcemic, their heart's not going to pump well, the vessels are going to be a little bit loose, and we're never going to get that pressure up. So we have to be looking for that depressed ionized calcium, and then easy enough, we can supplement it with our calcium salts. Now, we can make this diagnosis without the lab value. We can look at that ECG, and what you get in hypocalcemia is a prolonged QT. But very specifically, the way that the QT prolongs here is that it's the ST segment that gets longer and longer and longer. A lot of QT prolonging drugs will make the uh, T wave wider, right? So it'll stretch that T wave out. But with hypocalcemia, it stretches the ST segment out. So because it looks a little bit different in its QT prolongation, you might actually be able to catch this on the ECG. And let's be honest, if you make the diagnosis of hypocalcemia on the ECG, you're going to look like a superstar. Pretty easy. Just kind of scour. Scour that ECG for that abnormality. And then go ahead and give your calcium salts, whether it be calcium chloride, calcium gluconate. Doesn't really make much of a difference. Just make sure to give ample amounts of calcium. The next one on my list is going to be There we go. Oh, looks like I got a little freeze on the clicker. Okay, there we go. So cult bleeding is going to be your next thing to be looking for. And this can be a hard one because, again, it can kind of hide behind other things that are going on. The patients that I get the most worried about here are those with advanced liver disease. So the cirrhotic who's got a history of GI bleeding in the past, they've got varices, and they come in with some infectious process, whether it be SBP, pneumonia, some other infectious process, but they've also got this slow, indolent GI bleed going on. And I don't think that we need to be doing rectals on every patient with hypotension, but when you have that refractory shock patient, the rectal exam can be critically important. Because if you see maroon or dark stool, it's going to push you in a different direction. Instead of just ratcheting up those vasopressors, you're really going to think, maybe this patient's having ongoing blood loss. And I need to start supplementing blood back. Maybe they're on anticoagulation. I need to reverse that anticoagulation as well. So we need to carefully look for those GI bleeds that are hiding. And again, the patients that I've missed it in that I have to make sure I catch it is the patient who's cirrhotic. They hide so much in those patients, especially when they have these massive ascites and you just can't quite get a story of what's going on. 
So we want to be making sure that we are looking for that occult GI bleed, thinking about that hemoglobin, the fact that the hemoglobin value that you have might not actually reflect the circulating hemoglobin that that patient has at that moment, right? So it might not have dropped yet. So we need to keep a close eye out for occult hemorrhage. Moving on from occult hemorrhage, the next thing that's going to be on my list. Sorry, Haney, there's a little bit of a lag with the slides. Okay. So I'm going to be looking for my toxicologic causes next. And again, these can be kind of tricky because we might not know that the patient had a toxic ingestion, and it might not even be that they had a toxic ingestion. It might be toxicity related with the standard medications that they're taking. So think about the patient who's on a beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, or another medication that's cleared renally. They've got an infection, they get a renal hit, and now they're retaining that medication. No toxic ingestion, but they have toxicity due to that medication. So these patients are the ones that we see with bradycardia and hypotension. Bradycardia and hypotension aren't supposed to go together. We talked about the low lows with hypothyroid. This is another thing that runs through my mind. If the patient's hypotensive and they're bradycardic, think about beta blocker overdose. And again, my treatment is going to be very different. Norepi might help, but really what I need here is the antidote. I need to give them that hyperinsulinemia euglycemia therapy. So whether it be beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, this can happen with clonidine. And then there's so many other toxins that even if the patient hasn't taken a toxic dose, the dose that they normally take has become toxic because of the insult that they have, the infectious insult that they have. So we need to keep an eye out for these toxicologic causes and reach for those antidotes. Finally, the last thing on my list is to remember the second causes. And, and that's kind of what we've been going through all along, the second causes of shock. But I put this one on here to remind myself that I need to do a complete ultrasound evaluation of the patient, looking for some other cause that's hiding. In most of these patients who come in with undifferentiated shock, I'm going to do an ultrasound. But I might identify something and then stop to treat it. And so I have to make sure to go back and finish that exam. I like using the rush protocol, just having something in my mind of where do I have to look? Where do I have to check off and make sure that I've hit all of these areas? So make sure I've hit the heart and the lungs. Make sure I've looked for free fluid in the abdomen. Make sure that I've looked at um, the, uh, um, uh, sorry, I've looked at the aorta, that if I'm not quite sure, I've gone down and done a DVT scan looking for a clot. We have to look at all of these different places. And what we can find often when we finish that exam, again, is that second cause that wasn't going to get better simply by adding another vasopressor. So the patient who has a big pericardial effusion, who's in tamponade physiology, patient's not going to get better with vasoactive substances. They're not going to get better with vasopressors. We need to be looking for those signs of tamponade and then relieve the tamponade when we see it. That's what's going to actually fix the patient. We need to be looking at that heart and say, you know, could this patient have gotten sick? They've been immobilized and now they have a PE. So what does that heart look like? Do I see a large right ventricle in comparison to the left ventricle, that D sign? And that might tip me off and say, this patient needs to move down a different treatment pathway. Again, vasopressors can help, but I might need to move them towards either thrombolytics or some other intervention to help there. I need to look at the lungs and say, have I missed a pneumothorax? Have I missed a large pericardial, I'm sorry, a large pleural effusion or, or a hemothorax? Does this patient get an infection fall and hit their ribs and now they've got, um, uh, they're bleeding into their chest? These are all things that we can easily answer with ultrasound. And with the pneumothorax, we have to think, well, did I put in a central line and cause a pneumothorax? 
And maybe I got an x-ray afterwards, but it was too early. It's not really showing up. But now the patient has a pneumothorax that's contributing to their hypotension. These are all questions that we can answer using ultrasound. And while if you have a patient who has pneumonia and has a ruptured AAA, that would be almost case reportable, I'm going to look there. I'm going to finish that exam. So once I've gone through my chest, I've gone through the heart, I've gone through the lungs, I'm going to look at Morrison's pouch. I'm going to look for that occult bleeding. And then I'm going to pop down to the aorta and take a peek. I've never seen this happen before personally, but it would be silly to miss it. I've already got the ultrasound probe in my hand. I'm already looking at the abdomen. Go ahead and take a look at the aorta. And then again, if you're not sure, could they have a clot? Could this be a venous thromboembolic disease that's at play? Go down and look at the legs. It's an easy enough scan to do. So this is just a reminder to go through each of those steps. Make sure it's not like you looked at the heart. You're like, oh, look, the patient person has a poor EF. That's the problem. And you forgot to finish that exam. We have to make sure that we complete our rush exam or whatever mnemonic you're using to make sure that you are going through that entire examination. And so if we get to that point, that kind of runs us through all of the different things that I'm thinking about in that cognitive pause, making sure that I'm not missing any of those pathologies, making sure that I'm not missing something that happens to be hiding for the patient, whether it be that pericardial effusion, whether it be that hypothyroidism, the adrenal insufficiency, the hypocalcemia. We want to make sure that we think through all of that. And so every time you start your vasopressor appropriately, you're ratcheting up the dose and you're not quite getting the response that you want to see, take a pause. Take that cognitive pause, take a step back, say, what have I done already? What could I be missing? And what do I need to go through to make sure that the patient doesn't have one of these other pathologies where they're never going to get better until I address that pathology? So what's the calcium? What's the pH? Does that patient have that pan low kind of presentation that could be hypothyroidism? Do I need to give an empiric dose of steroids at this point? And I think if we do that, we'll do a much better job taking care of these patients. Now, I do have one image here that is a terrible slide. I'll admit that it's a terrible slide, but it's not supposed to be a slide. What this image is up for is for you to grab a picture, grab a screenshot and tuck it away somewhere and say, when I take that cognitive pause, here's what I'm going to run through. And the major thing is right at the top of that image to remember. When we see the patient who's a non-responder to vasopressors, our initial reaction isn't just reach for a second vasopressor. It is what's the underlying cause here? Why is that patient having refractory hypotension? Take that cognitive pause, run through each of these different etiologies, all of these different possibilities. You'll pick stuff up. I guarantee it if you go through this process every time, you will find pathologies that can be fixed. All right, that's all I've got. Um, Haney has my email address, my Twitter account. Please send any questions over if you have any questions or comments or other thoughts on this. And um, I hope that next time we do this, I am there with you guys in person to share and to chat. And Haney, thanks so much for inviting me to join you guys.